Chapter Fourteen of the Haunted Hotel, A Mystery of Modern Venice. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kainde. The Haunted Hotel by Wilkie Collins. Chapter Fourteen. As the summer months advanced, the transformation of the Venetian palace into the modern hotel proceeded rapidly towards completion. The outside of the building, with its fine Palladian front, looking on the canal, was wisely left unaltered. Inside, as a matter of necessity, the rooms were almost rebuilt, so far at least as the size and the arrangement of them were concerned. The vast saloons were partitioned off into apartments containing three or four rooms each. The broad corridors in the upper regions afforded spare space enough for rows of little bedchambers devoted to servants and to travellers with limited means. Nothing was spared but the solid floors and the finely carved ceilings. These last, in excellent preservation as to workmanship, merely required cleaning and regilding here and there, to add greatly to the beauty and importance of the best rooms in the hotel. The only exception to the complete reorganization of the interior was at one extremity of the edifice, on the first and second floors. Here there happened in each case to be rooms of such comparatively moderate size and so attractively decorated that the architect suggested leaving them as they were. It was afterwards discovered that these were no other than the apartments formerly occupied by Lord Montbarry on the first floor and by Baron Rivar on the second. The room in which Montbarry had died was still fitted up as a bedroom and was now distinguished as number fourteen. The room above it, in which the Baron had slept, took its place on the hotel register as number thirty-eight. With the ornaments on the walls and ceilings cleaned and brightened up, and with the heavy old-fashioned beds, chairs, and tables replaced, by bright, pretty, and luxurious modern furniture, these two promised to be at once the most attractive and the most comfortable bedchambers in the hotel. As for the once desolate and disused ground floor of the building, it was now transformed by means of splendid dining rooms, reception rooms, billiard rooms, and smoking rooms, into a palace by itself. Even the dungeon-like vaults beneath now lighted and ventilated on the most approved modern plan, had been turned, as if by magic, into kitchens, servants' offices, ice-rooms, and wine-cellars, worthy of the splendor of the grandest hotel in Italy, in the now bygone period of seventeen years since. Passing from the lapse of the summer months at Venice to the lapse of the summer months in Ireland, it is next to be recorded that Mrs. Rowland obtained the situation of attendant on the invalid Mrs. Carberry, and that the fair Miss Haldane, like a female Caesar, came, saw, and conquered, on her first day's visit to the new Lord Montbarry's house. The ladies were as loud in her praises as Arthur Barville himself. Lord Montbarry declared that she was the only perfectly pretty woman he had ever seen who was really unconscious of her own attractions. The old nurse said she looked as if she had just stepped out of a picture, and wanted nothing but a gilt frame round her to make her complete. 
Miss Haldane, on her side, returned from her first visit to the Montberries, charmed with her new acquaintances. Later on the same day Arthur called with an offering of fruit and flowers for Mrs. Carberry, and with instructions to ask if she was well enough to receive Lord and Lady Montberry and Miss Lockwood on the morrow. In a week's time the two households were on the friendliest terms. Mrs. Carberry, confined to the sofa by a spinal malady, had been hitherto dependent on her niece for one of the few pleasures she could enjoy, the pleasure of having the best new novels read to her as they came out. Discovering this, Arthur volunteered to relieve Miss Haldane at intervals in the office of reader. He was clever at mechanical contrivances of all sorts, and he introduced improvements in Mrs. Carberry's couch, and in the means of conveying her from the bedchamber to the drawing-room, which alleviated the poor lady's sufferings and brightened her gloomy life. With these claims on the gratitude of the aunt, aided by the personal advantages which he unquestionably possessed, Arthur advanced rapidly in the favour of the charming niece. She was, it is needless to say, perfectly well aware that he was in love with her, while he was himself modestly reticent on the subject, so far as words went. But she was not equally quick in penetrating the nature of her own feelings towards Arthur. Watching the two young people with keen powers of observation, necessarily concentrated on them by the complete seclusion of her life, the invalid lady discovered signs of roused sensibility in Miss Haldane, when Arthur was present, which had never yet shown themselves in her social relations with other admirers eager to pay their addresses to her. Having drawn her own conclusions in private, Mrs. Carberry took the first favourable opportunity, in Arthur's interests, of putting them to the test. "'I don't know what I shall do,' she said one day, when Arthur goes away. Miss Haldane looked up quickly from her work. "'Surely he is not going to leave us,' she exclaimed. "'My dear, he has already stayed at his uncle's house a month longer than he intended. His father and mother naturally expect to see him at home again.' Miss Haldane met this difficulty with a suggestion which could only have proceeded from a judgment already disturbed by the ravages of the tender passion. "'Why can't his father and mother go and see him at Lord Montbury's?' she asked. "'Sir Theodore's place is only thirty miles away, and Lady Barville is Lord Montbury's sister. They needn't stand on ceremony.' "'They may have other engagements,' Mrs. Carberry remarked. "'My dear aunt, we don't know that. Suppose you ask Arthur.' "'Suppose you ask him.' Miss Haldane bent her head again over her work. Suddenly, as it was done, her aunt had seen her face, and her face betrayed her. When Arthur came the next day, Mrs. Carberry said a word to him in private while her niece was in the garden. The last new novel lay neglected on the table. Arthur followed Miss Haldane into the garden. The next day he wrote home, enclosing in his letter a photograph of Miss Haldane. Before the end of the week, Sir Theodore and Lady Barville arrived at Lord Montbury's, and formed their own judgment of the fidelity of the portrait. They had themselves married early in life, and, strange to say, they did not object on principle to the early marriages of other people. The question of age being thus disposed of, 
the course of true love had no other obstacles to encounter. Miss Halden was an only child, and was possessed of an ample fortune. Arthur's career at the university had been creditable, but certainly not brilliant enough to present his withdrawal in the light of a disaster. As Sir Theodore's eldest son, his position was already made for him. He was two and twenty years of age, and the young lady was eighteen. There was really no producible reason for keeping the lovers waiting, and no excuse for deferring the wedding day beyond the first week in September. In the interval, while the bride and bridegroom would be necessarily absent on the inevitable tour abroad, a sister of Mrs. Carberry volunteered to stay with her during the temporary separation from her niece. On the conclusion of the honeymoon, the young couple were to return to Ireland, and were to establish themselves in Mrs. Carberry's spacious and comfortable home. These arrangements were decided upon early in the month of August. About the same date, the last alterations in the old palace at Venice were completed. The rooms were dried by steam, the cellars were stocked, the manager collected round him his army of skilled servants, and the new hotel was advertised all over Europe to open in October. End of chapter 14 Recording by Kainde of Bartrek.com